It comes to you in love. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the gospel of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time I ever got in, I was in first grade. The biggest kid in our school, his name was A.J. Williams, was picking on one of the smallest kids in the school who happened to be my best friend, and his name was Preston Smith. And I was somewhere in the middle, and so I thought, well, listen, if you're going to pick on the smallest kid, then you might, as well, you might as well have a piece of me. And so in the cafeteria in first grade, I remember A.J. pushed Preston, and I stepped in and said, A.J., you want to pick on somebody your own size? And he said, who? And I said, there's nobody here. And he didn't like that very much, and so he pushed me down. And let me tell you, for the next 30 seconds, I got pummeled. And the cafeteria lady broke us up, and she sent us to the office, and there we were in the office. A.J. had been there many times. He would tell me later. And that was my first time to be in the office, and I cried my eyes out. And I went home that afternoon, and I had a black eye, and I was obviously upset. And my big brother asked what happened with me, and I told him what happened. And he said, little brother, come with me. And he took me out into the backyard, and my big brother, who's 10 years older than me taught, me, taught me how to fight. I'll never forget it. You know, as Christians, we have to be people who know how to fight. Jude tells us, back in verse 4, that you are called to contend for the faith. That is, that you are to actively fight for the faith. But if we don't learn how to fight as Christians, we will default into culture wars and tit-for-tat kind of power struggles with the world, which is not what Scripture calls us to do and to be. So Jude, in verses 17 through 23, lays out for us how we are to fight as Christians. You want to learn how to fight? Let's learn how to fight. It might surprise you. Jude says that you contend for your faith. The main point of the sermon is this. You contend for your faith, your faith by word and deed empowered by the gospel. Christian, contend for your faith by word and by deed, empowered by the gospel. And in these verses, Jude breaks out both what it means to fight by word and to fight by deed. You want to look at it together? Let's look. How are we to contend for the faith? We do so by word and deed. First, what the text says is, number, uh, verse 17, you must remember, beloved, and again in verse 20, listen to how loving Jude is toward us. Beloved, you're the ones who are loved by Christ. Fight like you're loved by Christ. Don't fight like an orphan. Fight like you're beloved. Remember the predictions of our apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, this is probably quoting 2 Peter 3.3 3, or a paraphrase of it, which was written about 10 years before Jude was written. In these last times, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, psychikos in Greek, worldly people, people who aren't Christians. They're, they're devoid of the Spirit. Further evidence that these guys who are in the church are not believers. But, verse 20, you beloved, you will learn how to fight. Here it is. Number one, you fight by word, by building yourself up. Verse 20, in your most holy faith. The first way that we are to fight as Christians is by building ourselves up in our most holy faith. 
When I was uh, 16 years old and I got my license, I drove a 1985 CJ7 Jeep. It was maroon, and I wiped it with a diaper every week because it had been in our family for a long time. And it was a real piece of something. And I remember driving it one day to uh, a ministry called Young Life. And I was coming around the corner on Harrison Avenue right by Hamilton Park, and my car stopped. It was a standard. I figured I had just, you know, I'd popped the clutch wrong or something, and it stopped. Tried to start it, and it wouldn't start. And I found my embarrassment while all of my friends are driving by that I had run out of gas. So there I was in my blue jeans and my boots, and I had to run a mile back to my house. And I remember running, darting through the trees and the fences because I didn't want all my friends going to Young Life to see me who had just run out of gas in his car. A lot of us as Christians feel like we run out of gas. We feel like we are just exhausted by it. And just like you have to fill your car up with gas, you don't even think about it. So also we as believers, we have to build ourselves up in our most holy faith, which means that we have to read the Bible. I know that sounds very simple, but it's not, because think about how much aversion you have to actually reading Scripture. We have to understand what it is that we are called to do and to be. And we know that we don't just read the Bible to read the Bible. You read the Bible in order to know yourself better and to see the beauty of your Savior better so that you can grow in self-awareness and a deep sense of repentance and a pattern that develops throughout your life so that you can begin to build yourself up in your most holy faith. The goal and the engine to building yourself up is the regular practice of faith and repentance. Many of us um, are on sports teams. And many of us know that when you're on sports teams, you're on the team. You're in. You're on. Any of you ever been like on a select baseball team or a travel soccer team? Anybody in here ever been on one? A couple of hands. I see them. Yes. When you're on the team, you've made the team. But did that stop you from practicing? No. Anybody here ever done memory master in classical conversations? Right? Like you're working toward memory master. You may have gotten it before, but you keep practicing. Why? Because you want to, be, you want to get memory master again. You practice. We have no problem as members of a team practicing something and doing it again and again and again and again to get better at it. Then why would you expect it to be different in the Christian life? Now, I'm not saying that by doing these things, somehow God showers you with more love, for he can't shower you with any more love than he's already given you. But we practice in light of the fact that he's already called us his beloved children. We read and we study and we want to know these things. We want to know the truth. We build ourselves up in the most holy faith, within Jude's day meant you give attention to the apostles' teaching. Remember the predictions of the apostles. You go back and you read what they wrote. The second thing he says, notice in verse 20, it says, building yourself up in your most holy faith. Do you see that? And then there's another phrase right after that. Praying in the Holy Spirit. The second way you build yourself up or the second way you contend for your faith is first, by word, building, building yourself up, understanding his word, and second, by praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, the word praying in the Holy Spirit does not mean praying in a particular kind of way by which praying in the Holy Spirit is different than praying. Judas just say that you pray. 
with a particular dependence upon the work of the Holy Spirit. Prayer is communion with God. It is talking to God. And you cannot expect to contend for the faith without praying a lot. And mothers, you know what I'm talking about. Like, like Lauren and I have children who are 11, 9, 5, and 3. Holy shnikes, there's a lot of prayer in our house. I mean, just yesterday, we're at a baseball game, and we're at a recital, and, I mean, a, a soccer game and a recital. I, I, I don't even know what sport my kids play. A, a baseball, a soccer game and a recital, and uh, like we're just being pulled like we're on the rack of parenting, and we're just praying, oh, Jesus, help us to survive Saturday. Prayer is communion with the Lord. There's a woman whose name is Kara Tippetts that some of you may know who uh, mothered her children together with her husband, as a church planter's wife in Colorado. They enjoyed the mountains of Colorado. They, they uh, planted this church together. With, uh, Jason, her husband, was a church planter. And Kara found out that she was diagnosed within a very aggressive stage of breast cancer. And she began to write a blog. And a dozen people followed the blog. And then soon hundreds, then thousands, and then tens of thousands of people read Kara Tippett's blog, Mundane Faithfulness. They followed her life during her, toward the end of her life when Kara knew that she was going to die. She wrote a letter, an open letter to Brittany Maynard telling her, please do not take your life by euthanasia. It is worth living for. God is the one who tells us when we are to be born. And God is the one, right, Brenda? And God is the one who tells us when we are to die. And she wrote her final blog post, was a simple title called Letter to My Readers Upon My Death. And she wrote, I am undone. This is a letter I have written in my head for months, but putting the first words on paper is my undoing. She goes on down through the letter and she says, if you've known my heart and you've met me here in this place, would you commit my family to your prayers? Prayers of knowing the nearness and the comfort of God for the rest of their days, not simply the coming months. Would you commit them to heart in your praying? I know it's a large ask, but God is big, and I believe that you're capable of this kind of big prayer and love for my family, my community. I believe that God has beautiful things in store for my people, and I'm greatly comforted thinking of all of your prayers backing my loves. And friends, Kara Tippett's cry for prayer for her family is the cry of, that each one of us have in helping raise our own families. If we are going to contend for the faith, please hear me. It is going to come because as a community we contend together and we back each other's loves. You know, we back, you know, Jan and Roger's loves. We back Will and Missy's loves. You know, we back Les and Sheila's loves. We, we back each other's loves. And what would it be like to come to church and to say, hey, man, I'm backing your loves in my prayer for you this week. And we say, oh, please do. Please pray for this. And every day at 9 o'clock, every Sunday at 9 o'clock, I'll do it every day too if you want to keep coming, but every Sunday at 9 o'clock, I'm in the cell hallway to pray at 9. There are several of us that were there this morning, and if there's anything that our church needs, it's prayer. One, to be taught how to pray, to commune in His Word, and the other, to give you permission to just stop and to sit before your Father 
Not to share prayer requests for the 99% of the time and then pray for 1%, but to read Scripture and to commune with Him. Please, pray in the Holy Spirit with me. Pray for my loves as I pray for yours. That's the second way that God tells us how we are to contend for the faith. The third thing that He teaches us, notice verse 21, it says, Keep yourselves in the love of God. This verb keep is actually the only imperative in the text. The rest of them are participles that qualify what that means. How do you keep yourselves in the love of God? You build yourself up in your most holy faith. You pray. You're praying in the Holy Spirit. You're awaiting for the mercy of our Lord, as I'll talk about in just a moment. But you keep yourself in the love of God. A friend of mine not long ago had to uh, announce the very difficult news that the the youth minister of the church um, had just lost his baby. Their young child had died only a few months old. And, of course, everybody was distraught. And, and several weeks later, um, the youth minister's wife came back to church. And uh, people greeted her warmly. They didn't make her feel awkward. They were glad she was there. They loved her. They encouraged her. And... Um, there's a young couple, I mean, an older couple that came up to this young couple during church, and they said to her, they said, what is your hardest time of day? And she just lost it. She said, it's all hard. She made it through the service, and then after service, she was hungry, and she was grieving, and she just wanted to get out of there. So she made a beeline for the parking lot. And this older couple who had beat her to the parking lot were in their car, and they pulled up next to her, and they got out of the car, and he said to her, mine's 10 p.m. It's the hardest day for me, hardest time of day. And the, the wife said, mine's 6.30 a.m. And they got out of the car, and they just hugged her, and they said, every day at 6.30 and every day at 10 p.m., we're going to pray for you. What's the hardest time of day for you? And what if we could just have like a liturgy in our service where we just sit up and we could just say, it's four o'clock. It's eight because I hate my job. I don't like to drive to it. It's 3.30 when I'm on the playground at school. What if we were just to stand up? Can you imagine it? And say 10 a.m., 2 p.m., 6 p.m., 11 p.m. because I can't sleep. Wouldn't it be cool to be a church like that, that we're able to just do that? Friends, we can be. When you're able to say to each other, guys, I need you. Would you not just back my loves? Would you help me to keep, would you help me to keep myself in the love of God? And it takes a village to do that, just like we had these members who joined the church. Like these covenant children who are around us, they don't, stay, they don't stay children forever. They become teenagers soon. And when you're a teenager, it means, frankly, that you kind of hate your parents between age 14 and 17. And then when you're 17, you start to reintroduce yourself and become friends again. But parents of teenagers need your help to love them and to encourage them and to love their kids and take their kids out to eat and just be parents to their kids because it seems like of all the years of raising our children, those are the years when we so badly need to parent our kids, but we can't. It takes a church. Jude said, you want to learn how to fight? It's not culture wars, and it's not power struggles. It's not 
church programs even. It's being a church who's centered on the Word. You build yourself up in your most holy faith because you know the Scriptures. You pray in the Holy Spirit together. And you keep yourselves in the love of God. You remind yourself that the greatest news in all the world is not that you have to be good and cleaned up for God to love you. No, just the opposite. The moment that you admit that you cannot clean yourself up for God and that you're broken, that's when the gospel lands. That's when the penny drops. Because the heart of the gospel is that you and I are unable in ourselves to be able to merit God's favor. It's only because of the sacrificial mediation of a man named Jesus Christ who lived a very real life and died a very real death for you and for me. And on that cross, he was thinking of you and me and all of his elect as he died, with our names on his mind and our sins upon his shoulders. And he conquered what we could never conquer, He died perfect before his father to fulfill every Old Testament law that's been proclaimed and every requirement to appease an infinitely holy God. And three days later, he rose again from the dead to proclaim victory over sin and death. And we one day will rise again with him whenever Christ comes again. That is greater than anything your portfolio says, any house you could possibly buy, any new job you could possibly get. We were created to be people of good news. And if we're going to fight for that in a culture that is increasingly becoming more and more averse to Christianity, where the Christians don't have the market share of culture, we have to be people of the Word. We build ourselves up in a most holy faith, who pray in the Holy Spirit, and who keep ourselves in the love of God. Are you with me? But it's not just by word. Jews said it's also by deed. Paul wrote in Romans 15, he says, for I won't venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. How? By word and by deed. And later he wrote in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It is God's word, the proclamation of the gospel by which we are to contend, knowing it ourselves, praying it through, praying it in, maintaining ourselves in it together as a church, and it's the way that you live. It is by deed. Because notice what he continues to say. Look at verse uh, 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. How do we do that? Waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Deed number one. Have mercy. Notice what it says in verse 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. How do we contend for the faith? We have mercy on those who doubt. And doubting is not always an intellectual doubt. Doubting is something that goes with us all the days of our life. Wednesday this week, my next door neighbor, as a little boy growing up, her name was Frances Jackson. She was the definition of class to me. She was a Kappa Alpha Theta at the University of Texas many, many years ago. She married um, an obstetrician. They moved to a North Texas oil town. She raised her two children. And next, they lived next door to us. And, and 
I, when I came into the world, uh, uh, Mrs. Jackson, as we called her, um, was in her 60s, and she was like our grandmother. She was our surrogate mother when my parents were out of town. She loved us. But even toward the end of Miss Jackson's life, she began to have doubts and struggles. And the, for the last month, every day, every day, my mother has been feeding her and cleaning her all the way up until Wednesday, taking care of Mrs. Jackson in her home. And, and Mrs. Jackson knew the Lord, but she was frightened in some ways. She was losing control of her body in ways that were scary for her. And my mother was a beautiful example to me of having mercy and moving toward someone in their time of need. There's a man named Jim uh, Perschel who grew up in Hominy and then later in Winona. He passed away a few years ago, but he left his family a blog full of his reflections. In 2012, he wrote, Age-related deterioration of my body and my mind is limiting my activities and improvement is not likely. And I pray that I can hold on to my independence. But I find it difficult to rely on other people. And I hope to learn to gracefully accept assistance when it's necessary and when it's offered. Sometimes our doubts aren't related to our faith. Sometimes our doubts are just related to the way our body changes as we get older. And it makes us scared. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that you have a church body who loves you and is with you and cares for you. And one of the greatest joys of my life is being able to watch you as you get married. And one of the greatest joys of my life is also holding your hand as death approaches for you. And those doubts, those deep joys, they come for every one of us that's different. Whether your doubt is an intellectual doubt about the gospel or your doubt is a kind of fear mixed with your body changing as you approach death, we want you to know that this is how we are to contend for the faith together. You are to move toward other people in mercy, to shower them with the love of Christ. In the midst, verse 21 says, of those who doubt. Not only do you do it by moving to them in mercy, but it also says you save others by snatching them out of the fire. This is the role of the church toward evangelism and justice. The church is there to be able to snatch people out of the fire. The, the image in Greek is as though you're violently pushing somebody out of harm's way. Our evangelism is to be clear and crisp, and it is to be true, but also so is our justice. Like we are to care for the PRC as they extend the arms of justice to women who find themselves pregnant out of wedlock, and they're incredibly scared because many times they don't feel like they can come into the church. The one place that should be the no judgment zone, they feel like they walk in with such shame. And wouldn't it be beautiful to be a church? Can't we be a church like that who welcomes those moms who find themselves in that situation? And are so glad they're here. I'm so glad you're here. We'll walk alongside you together. The first way that we extend with deed is that we have mercy on those who doubt. The second is by our evangelism and our acts of justice. And our third is that we show hospitality. Where do I get that in the Bible? Look at verse 23. It says, Save others, snatch them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh, hating even the body, hating even what 
our bodies tend to do. There are people in the church who are leading Christians astray because of their, their sexual liaisons, and they, they were um, incredibly um, uh, beyond the bounds of Scripture and what they understood about sexuality. And Jude says to here, you know what? You should show hospitality even to sinners. There's a, a woman whose name you may know. She was uh, the English and Women's Study Professor at Syracuse for many, many years. She was the uh, sponsor of every uh, LBGT organization at Syracuse. She and her partner were the well-known counselors for many people who were at the time coming out of the closet in New York at the university. Her name was Rosaria Butterfield, and she met a, a, a man um, whose name was um, Ken Smith, and this man began to invite her over for dinner, and he, was, he didn't have a sense of judgment about her. He had a real spirit, not of judgment, but of curiosity about Rosaria. And he would have her over for dinner, and as these dinners progressed and they became friends, she eventually started going to his church. He was a pastor in a Reformed denomination. And soon, her story goes, that she felt so welcomed by the church that it radically transformed her life. And she couldn't have even imagine what had happened. Now, many years later, she's actually married herself to a pastor of a Reformed church. And she wrote a book not long ago called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Isn't that a good title? The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And it's about how we are to have an openness unhindered toward others. We are to be a people who welcome people into our home. Hospitality is a gift not of entertainment. It is a gift of openness. Crazy laundry, toys everywhere, kitchens and mess. Welcome to my home. This is life. That's the kind of people we should be. Because the truth of the matter is that um, most of us are fearful about hospitality because we don't want to be judged because our house isn't clean enough. Get over yourself. Open your house up. Let other people in. The Bible does very clearly speak about how we should not show hospitality to, to those who claim to be Christians but are walking outside of what God calls us to be and do who are under church discipline. The Scriptures are clear. Don't show hospitality, the hospitality to the false teachers or to people who are under church discipline lest you continue to approve of their lifestyle and not call them back to repentance and faith. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't show hospitality to the chief of sinners around your house should be full of sinners. How many people do you know that aren't in church who you invite over to your house? Or do you always invite Christians to your home? Do your children know what it's like to interact with people who don't believe the gospel, who struggle over the things of faith? The other education for our kids is to help them learn how to talk about the gospel together with other people, to show them the gospel in the way that your home is open for them. Stay with me, please. By word... And by deed, Jude says, we are to contend for the faith together. And let me just quite frankly tell you why this is so crucial and so important. Because different ones of us in this room, as you hear this sermon, you gravitate toward word or toward deed. And there have been studies done. There have been sociologists who have done studies. There's a study that was done between the year 1589 and 2000. And 69, they plotted out 
these generations and the tendencies of the generations, and they, dis- they discovered in the literature that there basically is a four-generation cycle of generations that happen. And in America, the four-generation cycles tend to ask four different spiritual questions. So, how many of you here are born between, you don't have to raise your hand, you don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to, but if you're born, if you're a boomer, if you're born between 1943 and 1960, any boomers in here? Any boomers in here? Yeah, I see those hands. Thank you very much. Yes, yes, thank you. I won't embarrass you anymore. I won't ask ages. Boomers. Your generation is the generation that believed in objective truth because you could still see it in the culture. The question that you primarily were after when you went to church was, what is true? Because objective truth was still assumed in the culture. The church had hegemony over culture. Everybody was in the church. And so the question that you primarily asked is, what is truth? And so therefore, if we're going to preach the gospel to you, then we give you C.S. Lewis or Lee Strobel, or we show you why the resurrection is true. What is true? Then after the boomers, who came after the boomers? The Gen Xers. If you're born between 1961 and 1981, anybody in here who's a Gen Xer? There you go, right? Here we are. The Gen Xers. You know, our, our questions were very different those of us who were Gen Xers. We weren't so interested in truth. The primary spiritual question that we're interested in is, not is it true, but we spent a lot of time in coffee shops building trust with each other, didn't we? Because we wouldn't listen to you, no matter how true it may be, until we trusted you. Because our primary question was, is it real? Is it authentic? So we built churches that made authentic worship. We had authentic worship experiences. We had lots of time in coffee shops. And if you're going to share the gospel with me, you need to do it in a way that's authentic and real. Gen Xers are the ones who can smell marketing a mile away. If it's kitschy, we've got a nose for it. We don't want any part of it. Who came after the Gen Xers? If you're born between 1982 and 2002, anybody here, any millennials in the room? I see the millennials, yes. All right, your question is, what is truth? Objective truth had left you a long time ago. Your question is, was it real? Millennials ask, does it work? And when they hear sermons like this, they're like, yeah, word, 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 that's great, thank you. But let's talk about the deeds, man. Let's get stuff done. Like, let's start, let's start organizations to get stuff happening. Let's redo North Tulsa together. And so when you preach the gospel to millennials, the primary question that they're after is, not is it true, although that's a sub-question, not is it real, although of course they want authenticity, but does it work? Can we do something to change the world with it? And so here the millennials are, right? They're, they're Snapchatting, they're Facebooking, they're, they're the ones who created this whole social media revolution. They're the ones who, who are very aware of what they're doing out in the world. And if you're going to preach the gospel to millennials today, then you might as well get organizations together that do stuff because that's how they hear the gospel. And you, they hear it no less powerfully than the boomers heard truth, no less powerfully than the Gen Xers heard real, authentic relationships. That's how the gospel goes in. And we may be able to project out, we don't exactly know yet, but if the four cycle of generations continues, then the next generation will be very much like what the GIs were back in World War I. Those who were born from 2002 all the way up into those who are going to be born for the next year. We don't know what they're going to be called. I-Gen, the silent generation. Who knows what they'll be called. 
But the question, the primary spiritual question that they're after, sociologists have concluded, they think at least, is just like four generations ago, is not is it true, not is it real, not is it authentic, not is it, does it work? Their primary question is, is it beautiful? What generation was the one who built beautiful buildings in downtown Tulsa? Four generations ago. And here we are again. They're not asking, is it true? Although they need to know that it is. They're not asking, is it authentic and real? Although they want to experience it. They're not asking, does it work? Although they want it to work. But is it beautiful? And here Jesus is among us, who's able to be the one who is truth. Who's able to be so real and authentic with us that he has a meal with us. And his body is broken before the world. Who's able to say, does it work? Oh, does it work? Look at the resurrection. It works. And he will come again to make everything new. And as we do that together, we become something beautiful for God, don't we? Jesus was the one who taught the woman at the well word. And then he healed the woman who was bleeding deed. Jesus Christ was the one who taught the disciples at the Sermon on the Mount with his word. And then what? He healed the blind man. Deed. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus is the one who's teaching the Pharisees. And all of a sudden, in the midst of his sermon, the roof, the thatch on the roof comes away and they lower a man. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And they begin to bicker with him. They begin to say, well, that's not orthodox. You can't forgive sins. That's blasphemous. And Jesus says what? I won't just give you my word. I'll also compliment it with the deed. I tell you the truth. Pick up your mat, rise, and go home. And he walks. And it says that they were astounded. What would it be like to be a church who can bring together both word and deed? It will take all of us, and it will take all of the generations of this church to do it because you have strength and you see questions in different ways than each of us do, and we need you. We need the boomers. We need the Gen Xers. We need the millennials, and we need the young generation that's coming up because Christ himself is true. Christ himself is the most real thing in the world. Christ himself works for you. His resurrection proved that to you. And Jesus Christ himself is beautiful as he invites you to see and savor his beauty in the table. Contend for the faith by word, putting yourself up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God and by deed, having mercy on those who doubt, snatching those out of the fire through your evangelism and through your justice, and hospitality, dwelling with those even with fear because you are so aware of how others' sin may affect your own. You're doing so because you're bringing word and deed together. That's the church. Isn't that beautiful? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you'll help us to be a church that is a church both of word and deed, empowered by the gospel, the good news, Christ, that you came to be for us, the true and the beautiful and the good for us, so that the deepest longings of our heart might be met in you. And would you now, Lord, as you prepare us to give and then to come to the table, would you help us to see that you are truth, that you are real, that you work, and that you are so beautiful and believable. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.